0: So, we will begin reading in chapter 12, verses 43, and I'm going to read through um, verse 16 of chapter 13. So, beginning in chapter 12 of Exodus, verse 43. Hear now the word of the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses and to Aaron, This is the statute of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat of it, but every slave that is bought for money may eat of it after you have circumcised him. No foreigner or hired worker may eat of it. It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside of the house. And you shall not break any of its bones. All the congregations of Israel shall keep it. If a stranger shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised. Then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land, but no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. There shall be one law for the native and for the stranger who sojourns among you. And the people of Israel deal just as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. And on that very day, the Lord brought the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their host. And the Lord said to Moses, consecrate to me all the firstborn." Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine. Then Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you came out from Egypt, out of the house of slavery. For by a strong hand the Lord brought you out from this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. Today in the month of Abib you are going out. And when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, which he swore to give your fathers a land flowing with milk and honey, you shall keep this service in this month. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen with you, and no leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory. You shall tell your son on that day, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. And it shall be to you as a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand, the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep this statute at its appointed time from year to year. And when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers, and shall give it to you, you shall set apart to the Lord all that first opens the womb. All the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be the Lord's. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, or you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. And when in time to come, your son asks you, what does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore, I sacrificed to the Lord all the males, that first opened the womb. But all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. It shall be a mark on your hand or frontless between your eyes, for by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt. And so ends the reading of God's holy word. Join me in prayer. Father, thank you for your word and we pray that uh, your spirit might give us ears to hear this morning. And eyes to see, in hearts willing to learn. Father, you are the same in your truth, in your love, and your grace. You are the same every day, and yet you challenge us to grow, to change, and to become more like Christ. We're not yet what we want to be and what we hope to be and what we will be. But thanks be to you, we are no longer what we used to be. Thank you for the hope of change, for without it, we would shrivel and die. It's that hope which calls us to pray for those who are sick, those who might be injured, those challenged physically, emotionally, mentally, or spiritually. And we ask, Father, for you to heal them, to restore them, to make them whole. It's that hope which beckons to pray on behalf of those who mourn, whose grief is deep and real, Whether that grief is new or long-lived, we ask you for comfort. Give them hope and walk with them day by day. It's that hope which dares us to pray for peace in a world dominated by war, for safe places and safe people on life's way through a dangerous world. We pray for food for the hungry, shelter for the homeless, water for the thirsty, justice for the oppressed, companionship for the lonely, and your love for all who are created in your image for whom you died and rose. It is that hope which summons us to pray for our nation. Father, we ask you to raise up leaders we need. Enable us to be a people of more than slogans and talk and to embrace righteousness and truth and justice for all. Give us wisdom and goodness in our living and love in all things. It's that hope of transformation that invites us to pray for the church, your church in all places, and your people in this place. Guide us in challenging times to live according to your word and to willingly be misunderstood in order to be faithful where you've placed us and to those you've entrusted in our care. Enable us to stay faithful in the midst of the storms that come with being a kingdom pe- person father we pray in christ's name and for his glory amen so the story is from exodus today I mean, you probably thought i'd never go back to exodus maybe some of you hoped i wouldn't i don't know before we get to that i want to talk a little bit about some things my mother taught me she taught me about religion When I spilled coke on the carpet, she said, you better pray that stain comes out of that carpet. (laughs) She taught me about logic from her decisive words, because I said so, that's why. My mother taught me foresight. Make sure you wear clean underwear in case you're in an accident. My mother taught me about irony. Keep laughing and I'll give you something to cry about. She taught me about stamina. She said, you sit there until everybody that spinach is gone. She taught me about the weather when she said, it looks like a tornado went through your room. She taught me about the circle of life. And she said, I brought you into this world and I can take you out. She taught me about behavior modification when she said, stop acting like your father. And she taught me about envy when she said, there are millions of less fortunate children in this world who don't have a wonderful mom like you do. We had a covenant agreement of sorts. I did what I was told or else. So what was my mother up to? Well, she's trying to prepare me for the future, for what life would hold for me, and to help me understand that I needed to be ready for the surprises and the changes life brings on almost a daily basis. She was preparing me for things that neither one of us knew exactly would happen, but she knew that life could be difficult and so sweet all in the same day. And she wanted me to be ready for life. I can reflect back on these experiences or teaching moments now and kind of see them as milestones or markers along the journey. Not only do they mark my progress, but now for me they stand out as God's markers, markers of his hand over my life through the influence of a mother. And we're going to see in our text today that God had been at work in Israel's life for many, many, many years. And you know the Exodus story. You know it's over 400 years long. And he gave them markers along the way so they would not forget his goodness in their lives and how he continually loved and cared for them. So we're going to do a quick, a quick review of where we've been uh, in Exodus. And if you recall the last time uh, we were in Exodus, the final plague had occurred, the tenth plague, the killing of the firstborn sons. And you also recall that Israel, God's people, had been given protection by that, by the placing of the blood of an unblemished sacrificed lamb on the lentils of their doors. Now, the firstborn child at the time of Moses, it really throughout the Old Testament period, into the New Testament period, held much responsibility and had tremendous privileges. Now, any one of us can certainly understand the loss of any child. But the loss of the firstborn was devastating in those days. And God's judgment on Egypt, killing the firstborn, shows us the seriousness of the sins of Egypt and of Pharaoh. In the passage on the death of the firstborn, we see God's redeeming power displayed in a great reversal. God striking down the firstborn of Egypt. He ended the conflict overnight with one blow. Pharaoh was defeated, devastatingly so. God had judged all of Egypt without distinction, rich, poor, good, and bad, but didn't matter. And the cries in the land extended to all people the destroyer went through the nation of Israel like a hot knife through butter. And you may recall God's words to Moses. Then you will say to Pharaoh, this is what Yahweh says. Israel is my firstborn son. And I told you, let my son go that he might worship me. But you refused to let him go. And now I will take your firstborn son. And God is a God of his word, and he kept his word. God turned evil on its head. You may remember in the early chapters of Genesis, Pharaoh's decree to kill all the newborn male children by drowning them in the Nile River. And you may remember that Moses was rescued from that fate. That's a marker. That's God's hand at work in Moses' life and in the life of a nation. But not only did God defeat Pharaoh by taking his firstborn, he defeated their gods. He struck down their religion. There's but one God, the triune God. Pharaoh, you are not a god. Pharaoh, your son will not be a God. You don't have a son anymore. You don't have a firstborn. God's power was displayed. He said that part of the reason for setting Israel free is so that the world will know that I am God, so that Egypt would know that I am God. So as we go through this this morning we might think a little bit about the severity of God's justice and the mercy of God and every one of us you've heard me say this before are a little bit like Pharaoh there's a little Pharaoh in each one of us and we deserve the same judgment in this country in particular there's a lot of people that think they'll never face a judgment day they just go around like a Pharaoh piling up pyramids full of stuff often at the expense of others feeding their pride and refusing to bow down to the true god and sadly they will end up just like pharaoh unless they look to god alone for mercy so we need to trust as believers that god is always at work and he's moving his plan of redemption forward God himself does not change. The plan of God does not change. The plan of redemption does not change. But what does change is our lives and our circumstances. And that change is by his hand. And sometimes that change is very dramatic. And sometimes it is slow and occurs over years. But make no mistake. That change is God's hand at work. We might be the ones incorporating the change or involved in it, but it is God's hand at work. And God, through Moses, had given Pharaoh so many opportunities to repent and to yield. And despite all that God had done, despite all the previous plagues, Pharaoh resisted God. And as a result, he paid the price for his pride and rebellion. And just like my mother showed me things as I grew up, just like your mother's taught and showed you things, there's a price to be paid for rebellion. So after the death of his firstborn, Pharaoh decides then to let the people go. Interestingly, as he tells Moses to get out of here, he refers to them as Israelites. Not slaves, not the Hebrews, but as Israel. Pharaoh's son was lost now, but God's son Israel was free. And not only does Pharaoh let them go, they take the riches of Egypt with them as they go. The people give it to them. They hand it over. As this exodus begins. Now most of you know who John Newton is. He's the author of the hymn Amazing Grace. One of my absolute favorite hymns, probably one of many of you's favorite hymns. And you know that Newton spent a good part of his life on a ship. He was a slave trader. And he was involved in some pretty heinous behavior uh, throughout his life. And several times at sea, God spared Newton's ship and his crew uh, through some pretty serious trials Yet Newton did not yield to God or the providence of God until one day when Newton surrendered, when Newton the slave trader became a slave to God. His crew had just been delivered from another storm that would have swallowed the ship had they not reached land. And Newton began to understand then that God had been at work in his life for a long, long time, molding him, shaping him, changing the circumstances, little by little, and he began to see God's providence and deliverance as he looked back over his life. So the Israelites, are going, they're going to see this, and likewise, they're going to see the coming of God's deliverance. And that's where we pick up in our text today as this great exodus begins to take place. And God had told them, be ready. And they were. And the time came for them to leave Egypt. And as they left, like I said, they pillaged the Egyptians just as God commanded, receiving from them their gold, their silver. And this is a sign of God's faithfulness and God's keeping his word. Through Israel's many hardships and struggles, God was faithful. He remained faithful. Deliverance, the promised deliverance had arrived. And man, it seemed like a long time coming. 400 years, that's multiple generations. But God's time doesn't work like our time. In this society, in this culture, when do we want it? We want it now. I need it right now. I can't wait till tomorrow. I can't, what do you mean wait till next month? You know what you mean I can't get an appointment today? We want it now. It's it's the culture we live in. We live in an instant society. God's people had to wait a long time for that exodus. And their exodus points to the greater exodus that we have in the gospel. The exodus where the king vacated the grave and gave gifts to men, as Paul says in Ephesians. He gives us the spoils of his exodus victory. Uh, there are some promises that are going to take us back a- as we look at this all the way to Genesis, which you know I'm keen to do. There are three promises that get f- fulfilled as this exodus begins. In Genesis 15, God promised Abraham that the people would be rich when they left the land. And so here they are, pillaging the Egyptians, taking their riches, taking their gold and silver. They leave Egypt rich. The promise to Abraham in Genesis 12 was that they would be a great nation. Do you remember way back at the end of Genesis, how many of them came to Egypt? Seventy. Seventy people came to Egypt. And our text tells us now, as they leave Egypt, some 630,000, at least men. We don't know what the total number is, but from 70 to over 600,000. God's promise was true. And the nations were being blessed, just like God promised Abraham in Genesis 12. Our text tells us, an ethnically diverse crowd went with them as they're leaving. So what we're seeing is it's not, just, it's not just Israel that's leaving Egypt. There are other nationalities, people in Egypt, Egyptians. Probably people, other people, other nations that were also captive in Egypt. Now they, some certainly believed in the God of Israel this powerful God who did these signs. But some just probably saw it as an opportunity to escape. I'm getting out of here. I'm getting out of this Pharaoh guy's hair. I'm going to go with these people. I don't know where they're going, but I'm going to go because it's my chance to get out. So this promise to Abraham that the nations would be blessed by his family, his nation, is already beginning to take place. So often we only think of that in the gospel. But it's really beginning to take place way back here. And as Israel departs, God's given these instructions for the Passover again. And we ask ourselves, wait a minute. He just did that. He just gave the instructions for the Passover. And they literally just experienced the Passover event. And here he is giving the instructions again. Well, we know that when the Bible repeats something, it's probably pretty important, isn't it? And the Bible repeats things so many times. So let's maybe look at a couple of reasons why he might repeat this. First and foremost, Israel would always need to look back on this day, on their beginnings, the day God freed them from bondage. And they would need this constant reminder of how God had set them free, how He cared for them and provided for them. Indeed, the great and wonderful things He did for them. And they were in store for even greater things and more wonderful things that God had promised them. They were promised a land that flowed with milk and honey. They were promised a Garden of Eden experience. And they were promised that they would be a great nation. But dark days were in Israel's future also. Famine, captivity, division, idol worship, corrupted religious leaders, the slaughter of their own people. Just like Pharaoh, they rebelled against God. They constantly needed a reminder of who they were and God's goodness to them. So God set it up that they would celebrate these things every year. And not just these three things. There are other things that God set in place. And as I said, a mixed multitude went out with them. Some of them for reasons unknown to us. So God lays down these instructions again and he adds some things to them. And just like our communion service, God specified that the Passover meal was only for the covenant community. The emphasis in these verses was those who were circumcised. The covenant sign given to Abraham. This act was the sign that one belonged to the community of faith and qualified one to participate in the Passover meal. Today we have a confession of faith. We demonstrate our confession through our obedience before we come to the table before we're allowed to sit at the table of the king because that's what we're doing when we come to communion. We're sitting at a meal with the king. So the outsiders weren't prohibited from the meal because of their economic status, their ethnic status. It didn't have anything to do with that. It had to do with their status as believers. It had to do with their status of God saying, this one is mine. I claim this one. And he is mine. And he will sup with me. He will dine with me. God was making a huge change in the life of these people. They'd been slaves their entire life. Now all of a sudden they're free. And their captors are handing them riches. And saying, get out of here, go. The promises of God were coming true. But they would forget that one day. Not not very far in, in the near future would they start to forget that. So God gave them reminders as if he's saying, do this in remembrance of me. Do this in remembrance of what I've done for you. See, God doesn't change his plan of redemption does not change. But because of that plan, our lives change and we change. We need to remember the big changes in our lives. Most of you can probably remember when you yielded your life to Christ. Now some of you may have been brought up in the church and you, you don't have a time in your life when you didn't know Christ hallelujah for that. I wish we were all that way, but the reality is we're not. Many of you, like me, are wearing a wedding ring. It signifies something. Among other things, it signifies the day your life changed. It signifies a covenant promise. And we have holidays and special days marked on the calendar and we have Every one of us, painful events seared into our memories, things we'll never forget, painful things. The good and the bad. These are all markers of God's hand in our lives and of his absolute sovereignty over the events, the days, the hours, the minutes, and the seconds of our lives. And sometimes these changes are mysterious, we don't even know they're happening, many times. If it's a long term. We don't even know it's happening. Until one day, it's, oh, wow, this is different. But those changes are conforming us to the image of Christ. Now, every one of us was born in the image of God. But sin has marred that image. And this plan of redemption that God is working includes polishing up that image, repairing that image, until one day he perfects that image. You see, change in our lives and in our institutions is inevitable. You can't escape it. You can try. Pharaoh tried Pharaoh resisted and he was trampled under by it. Change is coming into your life, into my life. Look at this county that we live in. Some of you home folk, I've heard the stories of how how it used to be so rural, old Florida, but it's changing. It's changing fast. And now I consider myself a Floridian. This is home to me. Not Tennessee. When somebody asks me where I'm from, I say I'm from Florida. Not Tennessee. I don't live there anymore. This is home. But it's changing. The county is changing. The world is changing. One day this church will change. One day you won't be here. I won't be here. Be a whole different group of people here but God will still be at work and God will still be working out his plan of redemption and every one of us will have played a part in that in some way some in big ways, some in small ways some in ways that nobody else knows about except God but we're all a part of that change it's inevitable embrace it or be run over by it. It's I don't know what else to tell you. It's it's a part of life. God doesn't change, his plan doesn't change, but we change and our circumstances change. Now we all have things that we've set aside in life, whether it be money, time, any number of things for some greater purpose. We set it aside for something greater, for something more important. In chapter 13, God called the Israelites to set aside their firstborns to himself. This act, of course, is connected to the 10th plague, isn't it? And the fact that God had distinguished Israel, the nation of Israel, as his firstborn. The firstborn represents the whole family. By dedicating the firstborn to God, they're saying, our family belongs to you, Lord. Joshua would later repeat this after the conquest. This day, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Notice that God commanded the Israelites to redeem their firstborn sons. Not sacrifice them, redeem them. This required a payment of some sort. Some sacrifice had to be given. Something had to be given to redeem the Son. You see the image here, don't you, of salvation by substitution. We see an example of the consecration of the firstborn when Mary and Joseph take the young Jesus to Jerusalem in Luke's gospel. Luke refers back to Exodus 13, to our passage, when this is happening. Of course, Jesus didn't need to be redeemed, but it was necessary for him to fulfill all righteousness. And Mary and Joseph offered up a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons, perhaps because they were too, for, too poor to afford a lamb. Ironically, in their arms... They held the true lamb as they offered their pigeons to redeem their son. Jesus is the ultimate firstborn. He consecrated his entire life serving the father. Philip Graham Riken says, How proper it was then for his earthly parents to give him over to his heavenly father at the time of his birth. Amazingly, to redeem us. God offered his own firstborn son. Now we no longer belong to ourselves. We're no longer slaves to the serpent, to the seed of the serpent, but to God. We belong to God. We are his. And in Exodus, in our text, we also see an expansion of the regulations for the festival of unleavened bread. It was to be observed in precise detail and then taught to the children. Notice the phrase, for the Lord brought you out of Egypt with a strong hand. He's already, we've already seen that in verse 3. It's repeated in six, 14 and 16. This phrase form, frames this entire section. It provides the picture of God's mighty salvation. The meal caused them to remember that God had delivered them from the bondage by his mighty hand. Just like our communion meal. We are called to remember Christ's work on our behalf through that supper. And the meal signifies our great deliverance. In this meal, we taste and see Jesus' work on our behalf. And just as Israel looked back to the Passover, we look back to God's work on the cross. And we look forward ahead to our future with that King God gives us a model for parenting, not that most of you here need it anymore, or I, but there it is, here in this meal, the child is being told of the great deliverance God provided. Children ask a lot of questions, they just do, especially why. Y'all know how many times you ask your mama why. You didn't ask your daddy why, but you sure ask your mama why. And some questions are silly, and others can be quite serious. When someone asks you, a non-believer, about the Lord's Supper, or questions about salvation, are you ready to answer? It's a great time to share the gospel with them. We were slaves, but God rescued us. We deserved the death angel on the Passover, but God passed over us and protected us. Tell them about a marriage supper that's coming in the future where one day we will sit down at the banquet table with the king, not just in a worship service, but in the new kingdom. Tell them it's by the strong hand of God that captives are freed. It's by God's hand and by his ongoing work that I am free. I'm redeemed. I'm loved. I'm cared for. And my eternity is sure. There are no doubts about my future. And it's all because of what God's done. It's all from the work of his hand in my life. Now, many of you know Michael and Cindy Erb quite well. I don't. And until the other day, I just knew, hey, that's Michael Erb. He's one of our missionaries. That's how much I knew. So I reached out to him. I said, could we sit down and talk? I know you have to leave. I know your schedule's busy. And he was gracious enough to say, yeah, I would love to sit down and visit with you. And so we did. And I got to know him. Not as well as some of you do, but I did get to know him. And man, do him and I have so many things in common. I would have never guessed. I just didn't know. And I asked him if I could share this story with you this morning, and he said, yeah. So, it's a story about God's hand in the life of him and Cindy and their ministry in Honduras and how sometimes God brings about change, abrupt change. Michael had been working with the ministry in Honduras for quite a few years. He went there at the invitation of the director of this ministry, who was a friend of Michael's. Now, it didn't happen overnight. It took a couple of visits to convince Michael um, that they could use him there. And they finally made the decision to go, and it was a hard decision. Michael loves Florida. He's like me. He just thinks this is the greatest place on the earth to live. So it was hard for them to go, but they felt like it was a call from God and they had to go. So during their time there, Michael's friend, who is the director of this ministry that Michael is helping, passes away. Eventually, a new director is hired. This is a marker in Michael's life. He can't see it at the time, but he can look back now and see it. And sometime later, a significant event happened that Michael did not plan for, he did not expect. It was not an event that his actions or his family's actions brought about. It was brought about by someone intent on evil. And Michael reacted just like any one of us in this room would have. And because of that event, this new director of the ministry Michael worked with chose to end their affiliation with the Herb family. Now imagine yourself in a foreign country and the work you've been doing for many, many years your ministry is suddenly pulled away from you. Would you be anxious? After all You answered a call that you felt like was from God to do this work. And now out of the blue, and because of circumstances beyond your control, this ministry is stripped away from you. And people that knew Michael and Cindy asked, what are you going to do now? Michael and Cindy asked themselves that same question. What are we going to do now? And they spent some pretty heart-wrenching days and nights. Trying to sort through those questions. And through talking with each other, with their financial supporters, family members, probably some of you, and many, many conversations with God in prayer, Michael and Cindy decided to stay in Honduras and continue to do what they felt God had called them to so they're still there, and they're still ministering to children, and they're still ministering to people in need. And they do work in their local church. The markers of change were there to see. It's hard to see them sometimes. The change in leadership there brought about a change in the focus of that ministry and the day-to-day operations. So their ministry changed. But yet it didn't. They're still there. God has rewarded them for their faithfulness. And while the change and transformation were painful, change came and Michael and Cindy elected to embrace it and not rebel against it, not be run over by it. And God rewarded them for their faith. And he rewarded us are being faithful to them by allowing us to spend time with them and to participate in their ministry. And I'm so thankful I got to spend that time with Michael last week because now when you guys talk about Mike and Cindy, I'm part of the conversation because I know him. I know him personally. I know things about him. I know things about him some of you don't. Some of you never will because of a common connection that we have. So God gave Israel the Passover. He gave them the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And it required the consecration of the firstborn. All to remind them of who He is and what He's done for them. The covenant God who freed them from bondage. Made them into a great nation. And they were already becoming a blessing to the world. God was faithful to His word. And their lives were changed dramatically by His strong hand. And the people of Israel at that time, accepted and embraced the change. And later, they would come to rebel against it. And they would be run over by it. And their kingdom would split. And their cities would be destroyed. And they would be taken into exile. They rebelled against the plan of God. So how do we conclude this section of Exodus that seems kind of long, it seems kind of dull, we're just reading about these feasts and things that they did back then that we don't do now. Let us remember that true freedom comes in Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is the Lamb who provides us with total perfection and protection from God's judgment. He is the spotless, unblemished lamb. He was the lamb whose bones were not broken. The ultimate lamb crucified during Passover. You and I deserve the same thing Pharaoh got. But for the blood of Christ. Like Pharaoh, we're not gods. So as God's people... Even as we eat and drink in this life, we keep our shoes on. We recognize who we are, and we're ready to go. We're ready to go stand in that final judgment. We won't come cowering in fear. We get to march triumphantly towards Zion, right through the door. What door? The door covered with the blood of the Lamb, the narrow. You know, when I spilled that Coke on the floor, it did make a mess. And yes, my mama was pretty upset. She didn't tell my father for a couple of reasons, I suppose. And those reasons are probably tied to how he would have reacted. He would either overreact. I said get that boy down here and whoop him right now or he would underreact." oh maybe don't worry about it it's no big deal he wouldn't react appropriately in mama's eyes so it was time to clean up she called sternly to me to come with a bucket of soapy water and a brush of course I was obedient I knew I'd messed up And so I kind of walk up there, uh, kind of ashamed of myself. Maybe more afraid than ashamed, I don't know. And she takes the bucket and in a stern voice says, now watch this, I'm only going to show you once. And she got down on her hands and knees and began to clean that stain. Scrubbing hard to get that coke out of the carpet and giving me instructions the entire time she's doing this. Then she'd scrub for a while and she'd take dry towels and soak it up like you do when you're trying to clean a carpet. And she'd look up at me and say, do you understand now, boy? I said, I did. Then she went right back to work, repeating the whole process again. Remember, she said she was only going to show me once. She said, I want to make sure you get this right. I want to make sure you understand how to do this. So I stood by and watched. And by the time she was finished, the stain was gone. Mama cleaned it up. I just watched. And she struggled to get to her feet and sternly told me to go dump that bucket and put these things away. And as I turned to walk away, she stopped and called me to her side. And she wrapped her arms around me and said, I forgive you, son. Try not to do this again. And one more thing. I love you. I will always love you. And I expect I'll be cleaning up after you for a while. But I will still love you. Even then. But in this life, there are just some things your mama can't teach you. And that your mama can't do for you. And your parents may or may not have raised you in church. They may or may not have had you baptized. And if they did, good for them. But you're here today for some reason. And the only reason that I know for sure is because God's hand is on you. And he steered you here. He changed the circumstances of your life to put you here. To redeem you. To free you from bondage. He's given you the covenant seal of baptism and he invites you to his table every month as we worship here to eat with Christ. It's God who's placed his markers on your journeys of his plan to redeem you. It's these markers that are reminders of his work. We can only come into the presence of a holy God Because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. And you have lots of markers in your life you can look back to. And maybe some of them you don't want to look at. Maybe some of them you can't remember. But I promise you there is one you can remember. And that's that cross up there behind that screen. That's the most significant marker in your life. Look to it when times are hard. Look to it when times are good. Look to Christ always. He has done the work and all that's required of you and me is faith. And by that faith, obedience. And in that obedience, love. Praise God we have a substitute. A Passover lamb in Christ Jesus. Amen. Father, thank you. For our time this morning, thank you that we could gather together to sing praises to you and to hear from your word and to be fed by your word and to hear once again of the riches and the glory of Christ and your faithful covenant-keeping promises to us. In Christ's name.